Good to see you all. Thank you so much for being here today, for coming out. And hello to everyone who is online. Um, thank you for being here online as well. I'm glad we started out with a little bit of joy because, um, well, you all came here to talk about street harassment. So things are going to get a little bit heavy for at first. But um, I know that uh, it's a really important conversation. And um, we'll, we'll bring things up to the end, we promise. Um, <laughs> so I'm Shanti Elise Prasad with Chinese for Affirmative Action and Stop AAPI uh, Hate Coalition. I use she, they pronouns. Um, first, I'd like to acknowledge that we occupy the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramaytush Ohlone peoples, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula, and recognize that we benefit from living and working in their traditional homeland. The Ramaytushaloni understand the interconnectedness of all things, which is something that I really value um, and believe strongly in. And I hope that our discussion tonight honors their tradition of coming together and growing as a community. Um, I'd like to welcome uh, staff, both online and in person, from the offices of California Senator Scott Weiner, who represents San Francisco, Assemblymember Matt Haney, who represents this, this 17th Assembly District, and San Francisco Supervisor Gordon Marr. I'd also, uh, before we get started with this wonderful group of panelists and fierce advocates, I'd like to offer some history of the Stop AAPI Hate Coalition. Um, so in response to the alarming escalation in xenophobia and bigotry resulting from the COVID-19 pandemic, um, Manjusha P. Kalkarni of AAPI Equity Alliance, Cynthia Che of Chinese for Affirmative Action, and Russell Jung from the Asian American Studies Department of San Francisco State University launched the Stop AAPI Hate Coalition in March 2020. Um, and the coalition tracks and responds to the incidents of hate, violence, harassment, discrimination, shunning, and child bullying against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in the United States. Its mission is to advance equity, justice, and power by dismantling systemic racism and building a multiracial movement to end anti-Asian American and Pacific Islander hate. We recognize that in order to effectively address anti-Asian racism, we must work to end all forms of structural racism le leveled at black, indigenous, um, and all communities of color. Some data quickly from the Stop AAPI Hate Coalition shows that out of the more than 11,000 hate incidents that have been reported, and of course that is an underreport, um, in the last two years about two-thirds consisted of verbal harassment with almost half taking place in publicly accessible spaces such as public transit um, and in businesses. Harassment can cause anxiety and trauma, as I'm sure many of you can attest to, even when it's nonviolent. Um, and when freedom of movement is limited, it impacts the person's economic opportunities and has a ripple effect on their families and communities. Not all hate incidents are legally defined as crimes. So that's um, something we'd, I'd, I'd really like to differentiate. Um, for example, someone yelling racist slurs while wrong and hateful is not a crime. Um, but an incident may not be a crime, although it may not be a crime, it can still be traumatizing and damaging. The vast majority, about 
of the incidents that are reported through the Stop AAPI Hate Coalition to, are not hate crimes. So, in February, we launched our No Place for Hate California campaign to name the deeply ingrained problem of street harassment and understand its harm to the public. We're currently moving two bills um, through the California State Legislature that would take a non-carceral approach to ending street harassment um, on public transportation and in between customers at businesses by expanding civil rights protections and finding, um, finding public health focused solutions in the same way that the non-smoking um, and public seat belt uh, use campaigns did. And uh, lastly, and I'm gonna get to the panelists very soon here, we know that API communities are by definition intersectional. I, for example, am South Asian, Philippinex, and Chicanx. I'm also queer, a woman, and a daughter, and granddaughter, and niece of immigrants, some who are elderly, and there are both Christians and Hindus in my family. And as we recognize the last day of Pride Month, LGBTQI, people are vulnerable to the largest category of hate, which is harassment. It's a form of violence that has been tolerated in society, but that creates lasting trauma. And historically oppressed communities have a long history of shared solidarity and organizing with each other. And tonight we wanna talk about continuing to create and strengthen, strengthen lasting real solidarity and recognize intersectional identities to find solutions together using communal language. So I'm really excited to introduce our panelists. Um, I feel honored to have a conversation with this group tonight. Halima Barucha, Advocacy Director for Alliance for Girls. She is a Gen Z South Asian American named on She the People's list of 25 under 25 women of color to watch. Janice Lee, Director of Coalition for Community Safety and Justice, part of uh, CAA. In 2018, she became the first Asian American woman elected to the BART Board of Directors. And Jupiter Peraza, Director of Social Justice and Empowerment Initiatives of the Transgender District. Last year, she led the initiative to designate August as Transgender History Month in the city and county of San Francisco, ushering in the nation's first commemorative month uh, for transgender history. And this year, she was recognized by State Senator Scott Weiner as the California Senate District 11th Woman of the Year. Okay, quickly, a few more things before we begin the panel discussion. My colleagues, Carly and Andy, are circulating cards and pens for you to write questions for our Q&A session later in the discussion. For those watching online, please provide questions in the chat. Um, and I'd like to acknowledge that there will be some personal histories of harassment shared tonight. We feel it's important for people to speak the truth about their experiences and also that everyone knows best how to take care of themselves. So feel free to step outside of the room at any point if needed. And if someone is going to share a harassment related story either from the audience or um, on the panel, maybe just please take a moment to let the audience know to be prepared. Okay, here we are, page five, excuse me. Um, so street harassment, I know we've been talking a lot about it, so I just wanna quickly define it. 
Um, and I know you, you all know what that means um, and, and may have experienced it yourself, but I'll just say it, it's defined to mean words, gestures, or actions directed at a specific person in public without their consent based on a protected characteristic that the person experiences as intimidating, alarming, terrorizing, or threatening to their safety. So um, Jupiter, Halima, and Janice, uh, can you each please introduce yourselves and share a bit about how the issue of street harassment um, has impacted you personally and or your work in the community? And Jupiter, if you don't mind starting. <coughs> Um, hi, everybody. Good evening. I am very honored to be on the stage with uh, uh, these panelists. Um, my name is Jupiter Peraza, uh, she, her pronouns, and I am with the Transgender District. <clears throat> and, you know, preparing for this panel, I really began to think about my experience with uh, public harassment. And over the last year or so, I've noticed that I really ignore or I tune out every time I'm walking down the street or every time I'm in um, a public transit, whatever is happening around me. And I never quite uh, realized that it was coming from a place of uh, trauma. Um, and I began to go down memory lane as to why I have developed that coping mechanism. Uh, because it's so easy to just pop in your AirPods hop on the train, walk down the street, and just forget about everything. And it really took me back to this one time in which I had just gotten off of um, work at Manny's. I used to work at Manny's before. And I jumped on the BART because I was going to San Francisco State University for, for class. Um, and as soon as I hopped in BART, I remember this man in um, this sort of empty car um, Bart, uh, he sat right next to me, just right next to me out of sort of a plethora of empty seats. And I recall that um, he, he began to ask me what time it was, uh, to which I answered what time it was. And then he began to ask me if I was trans. Um, nobody had really asked me sort of to my face uh, with nobody around that question. So I began to feel quite intimidated. Um, so we get to Daly City, I get off the car, and I can see him uh, following me. And um, I get off uh, Daly City Bar, and I jump on the Muni. I remember the Muni was about to close its doors, and I ran for it, and I uh, made it to the bus. And as the bus was about to take off, I remember that this man also ran and began to bang on the front door of the Muni to be let in. And the bus driver let him in, um, to which I began to feel even more anxious because I thought I was safe in, um, uh, you know, being in that Muni bus. And I remember that he continued, to, he, he sat right across from me. And he sort of kept asking me, what's your number, let me talk to you, or you know, blah, 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 blah. And you know, I ignored him. I was visibly uh, disturbed, I was visibly uncomfortable. And I remember that he asked, can I have a pen and paper? Um, and I said to myself, oh gosh, please, nobody give him a, 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 a pen and paper. Uh, but someone did give him a pen and paper. He wrote down, I don't know what he wrote down because I never saw that piece of paper, but I remember that he wrote it down and he was handing it to me and I kept ignoring him. 
And as we were approaching my stop um, in Park Merced, I remember that as soon as, I was, as soon as I was about to get off, he threw the piece of paper at me and it landed on my lap and I just sort of tossed it out onto the floor of the Muni. And I got off the Muni and I remember crying and that had never happened to me before, but I, I was crying because I felt so disrespected. And I was also crying because I was, I was telling to myself, people were kind enough to give him a, a, a piece of paper and a pen, but they weren't kind enough to stand up for me when I was visibly uncomfortable. And it made me feel awful. It made me feel disrespected. And I feel like most of my hurt came from the fact that, oh, because I am trans, no one decided to say anything. Uh, and I, I, I really internalized that moment. And I remember going to class and just, you know, uh, shelving that in the back of my mind. And, you know, as I move forward through the years, I. I didn't think of that moment until recently when I was thinking about this panel and what I wanted to say in my experience with uh, street harassment. And, you know, uh, now that I'm here, I sort of am able to talk about it because I really want to let go of that, you know, of going out into a public space and not, and sort of not being aware of my surroundings because not being aware of your surroundings is also dangerous. If you're not aware of what's going on around you, you're putting yourself in danger. Um, so now I am actively practicing being um, mindful of where I am and who I am surrounded with in hopes that I continue to keep myself safe and others as well. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Talima, would you like to go next? Yeah. Thank you for sharing your story. It's very difficult, you know, even talking about it. I think the emotions come back and it's very triggering and the long lasting effects of street harassment live in our body. They live in us. Um, and so that trauma is there wherever we go and it gets re-triggered every time these instances happen again. Um, the first time that I took BART um, was the first time I was harassed on public transportation. And since then, over the years, as a regular BART writer, I've continued to experience sexual harassment. Um, you know, I've been followed, I've been yelled at, um, I've been, you know, someone has sat there next to me and literally just masturbated, um, just all kinds of awful things. So being a part of this work and being able to take back my power, um, be able to represent my community, being able to work with and for girls and gender expansive youth of color um, to be able to say, not one more girl, we will not tolerate this, we will call this out. Um, and Shanti, as you were saying, a lot of these instances of harassment are not against the law. And just because it's not against the law doesn't mean it is okay. But because of that, there is less of an imperative, there's less of a um, responsibility, I feel like, from transit agencies, from our government, to say we need to intervene and do something about it. And it shouldn't have to be against the law for us to say, we will not allow this on our system. We will not allow this in our space. Um, and so being able to do this work has been really empowering, being able to see girls and gender expansive youth of color, survivors, actually see the effects of this work, being able to see that their solutions, their lived experiences were valued and implemented has just been a transformative experience. So I'm really excited to talk about that and 
to see how we can continue to advance this and expand this through um, SB 1161. Thank you. Um, I just w wanted to say quickly, yeah, like hearing your stories, I've had similar experiences myself, and I think we ha we have this feeling that we're not supposed to talk about it. So the campaign is combating that, um, and you know, just being able to to hear your stories and know that you're not the only one is is really the first step of and and, and makes that so important. So yeah, thank you, Janice. Yeah, wow. Um, I'm just absolutely honored to be here with Halima and Jupiter, and thank you so much for for sharing, Biz. I think. The more that we break the silence of this, the more that we can take collective action, both in you know policy making like broader collective action and also just acknowledge and recognize those individual moments where we need to, as individuals, also step up and support someone like Jupiter who's being harassed by this person while you know she's writing Muni and Bart. Um, I, I think personally for me, when I think about harassment and sexual harassment first, just as an elected official, um, wh whether you're running or if you're, you know, have a public persona, you've really, in in putting yourself out there, have to identify yourselves, at, you know, a, as all these things that you are. And as someone who's an immigrant, I, I'm queer. Um, I'm in a relationship with a woman. I uh, am Asian American. I'm from Hong Kong. All these things start sort of stacking up, and I feel like it gives more reason to be harassed. It's like, well, I'll harass you because you're a woman, but I'll also harass you because you're not from here, but I'll also you know, make racist remarks that you, it, it just adds up so quickly. And you know, for someone like me, I, I don't have the opportunity to hide that. Um, I will say the harassment I probably get the worst, unfortunately, is online. Um, and those sort of insults I get, they immediately jump to, I'm gonna rape you, I'm gonna stalk you, I'm gonna find you. Um, to the point where I actually had to have BART police chief get involved because some of the um, the gender-based violence, uh, threats of violence had become so strong that they had to like monitor this. Um, but all that said, you know, when I'm out on the streets, um, I face that and I am an anonymous person in the street, you know? Um, and one, you know, something that I keep thinking of um, so I, I now live with my partner in the inner Richmond, but we used to have a long distance relationship. I lived in the outer sunset. She lived in the tenderloin. <laughs> and, um, so I would often, <laughs> so I would often take, you know, the seven muni bus and then, um, she lived on a feral. So I like would walk up Jones and then oftentimes, um, my partner actually, especially at that time, she worked in permanent supportive housing, building permanent supportive housing, homeless housing, literally in the Tenderloin. That is her community that she is invested in. And a lot of times we'd walk to work together before I would head home, we'd hold hands, and basically every time we would be harassed for doing that by someone on the street. And every time you have to go through that process both together and individually of how you're going to respond. Are you gonna say something back this time? Or are you just going to stomach it this time? And that moment, it, it was always men harassing us and saying whatever insults. That's just a thing that that person does as like an activity, a behavior, but something that's gonna sit with my partner Danielle and me for the rest of the day. It'll be something that triggers the next time we're walking up and down Jones Street. And the, the way that, you know, as Halima, you're saying that, you know, 
we hold that trauma for, for such a long time. I think what's also really immobilizing is just not feeling like there's anything you can do and just feeling like whatever action you do is going to be wrong. It's not going to be effective. It's not going to fix anything. And I think, you know, my way sort of to think about this and address this, I think first is um, being super grateful for folks like Jupiter, Halima, Shanti, other folks here who are doing the work on the ground to change policies so that there is a public recognition that the public sector in particular, that our government needs to step up and say, like, fuck this shit. We're not going to deal with this. We're not going to allow this anymore. And then I think the second thing, sort of from an individual standpoint, is for me to know that I face this, but I am not alone in facing this sort of harassment. And so when I see it, you know, what can I do to, you know, <laughs> and I took this for the bystander intervention, you know, that um, Alliance for Girls produced with Bart, um, th that video, you know, what can I do to immediately give support to someone who's a victim or a survivor in that moment? And I've <laughs> now broken up literal fights on Muni. You know, I have now really thought about what my role is in holding this sort of collective space we have together when we are in public space and to not let those folks say, oh no, it's just our individual responsibility. You know, it's on you to watch out, it's on you to know better. It isn't. And that we can all sort of take action for each other. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you for bringing that up. I actually want to say to that end, you know, it is on all of us to keep each other safe. And when we talk about abolition, when we talk about not taking a carceral approach, it means each of us stepping up individually as a community. So if there's one thing that anyone who's here, who's watching on Zoom, who's here in person can do, it is to learn about bystander intervention. And we did a really good job of producing a very easy to digest video uh, with BART for the Not One More Girl initi initiative, as Janice was saying. And you can find it at bart.gov slash girl. And the video really talks about the four steps to intervening safely, you know, you as a person intervening, because that can be triggering and difficult, especially when you're from a marginalized community or you're personally impacted. But I always say at the very least, you know, even if, you know, you end up freezing or you don't do anything, even after the incident, just to acknowledge, hey, I saw that, that wasn't okay. Can I walk you to your destination? Can I call someone for you? Um, I can be a witness in a report if you so choose to report this. All of those things are tremendously helpful, but just the acknowledgement that this happened, that you're not alone, shifts our culture and shifts the conversation. So that's one thing that I think all of us, you know, right off the bat can do and should be doing. Thank you. Um, yeah, that I'm, I'm glad you brought up the, the, the BART campaign, which we're gonna hear a little bit more about um, later in the discussion. Um, and, um, Halima has some really promising data to share. This is really long-term work. Um, I know that you know there's some immediate changes that we can make right now, but this is also about culture shift. Um, it's about approaching things as a community, and our communities right now are really um, disjointed, you know, suspicious of each other. And so this is this is really long-term work of of bringing communities together, changing racist norms um, and knowing that we can be there to help each other. Um, I wanna, I wanna uh, take a, a couple steps back though and go back and talk about um, the difference of like what a hate crime is and, and about the importance of language. Um, so I wanted to ask Jupiter, um, you know, a lot of the mainstream discussions of violence targeted at marginalized communities um, centers on the phrase hate crime. 
Um, and even though that actually has a very narrow legal definition that doesn't line up with the various forms of violence that we've been talking about that our communities experience every day. Can you talk more about the importance of language with respect to street harassment? Um, yes, that's a, a, a very great question. And you know, every time that I that I discuss um, hate crimes, I always go back to the parameters of a hate crime. You know, I always, which of course are very limited legally, um, you know, I, I always go back to how reporting a hate crime is very much of after the fact. After the fact it has happened, after the fact someone has experienced a very traumatic um, uh, situation in their life. And you know, it's it, it most often doesn't feel like it's it's like it's worth mentioning because when it happens you're just trying to cope you're trying to survive you're trying to move forward and i think it's very important to change the language and to address the language of how is it that we can address something uh, prior to it happening to save that individual of experiencing something traumatic as Halima said, something traumatic that can stay in, in your body for, for years and something that can infect you for the rest of your life. Um, and I always go back to, we must expand the, the language of what hate is and how we report hate and how we address it. Um, and the more that we expand the language of what hate violence is and the different ways in which we experience hate violence, the more that we can come together and say to one another, I have experienced that as well. We have a shared experience, even though we might seem like we're from universes, from different universes. Um, I, I think that's quite important. And in, on the other flip side of the coin, I, I always think of language as also being um, artillery. Um, you mentioned that a lot of hateful incidents and a lot of uh, hate crimes and harassment for the AAPI community uh, skyrocketed uh, during the Trump administration in which he characterized uh, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic as originating in um, Asia. I always, um, I always refer back to that very, uh, xenophobic rhetoric that had very uh, prominent ripple effects um, in the double API uh, community. And that is something that I continue to see in, you know, most especially in the rise of anti-trans legislation that we are seeing across the country. That legislation is, it's not just, you know, you really have to think about what it means. And you really have to think about how that rhetoric reflected in, reflected in that legislation can be translated into violence. When a trans person is out and about, um, that rhetoric can place them in danger um, as it proven that it has. You know, just in just this year alone, almost 20 trans people have been uh, killed um, because of transphobic um, violence. And when we address the issue of harassment and hateful violence, we must go back to the root of it. Where is it coming from? 
where are people uh, conceptualizing these ideas of hate? And it goes back to the way that we communicate that, um, but how we think that it's okay to do so. Um, and it's not okay. Uh, we must really focus on um, how is it that we can reform that and address that and also revolutionize it to make sure that we don't continue to promote it. Thanks. Did, I felt like you might. No. Okay. <laughs> um, I wanted one thing though, Janice. I wanted to say thank you for your um, your sad story of your long distance relationship. I really <laughs> appreciate you bringing some levity to the conversation. Um, but yeah, thank you very much for that, um, Jupiter. Um, I, I think you're. I think you're absolutely right. That that's. There's just been this continued culture of just using language. Oh, it's harmless. You know, that kind of like boys will be boys. That's what they do. Kind of conversation it is just it is a precursor to violence. And so street harassment and the prevention of of that um, through public health solutions, I think, is is preventing hate crimes before you know what is defined narrowly as a hate crime before they happen. Uh, Halima, um, we know that street harassment Im impacts historically oppressed communities and that it particularly harms people who sit at the intersections of multiple identities um, of those who are discriminated against. Can you, could you talk some about how we connect our issues in ways that are authentic and impactful? Yeah, I think just kind of hopping onto, you know, what Janice said earlier, right? It's like, am I being attacked because of this or this or this or all of the above? And unfortunately, that is a very real uh, reality that many of us who hold multiple identities, as we all do, right, as human beings, um, have to navigate as we are walking out, you know, being in community, being in public spaces. Um, as a Muslim woman, you know, who's, who's visibly Muslim, um, it is like having a walking target on your back, right? It is something that before someone knows anything about me, they know my religion. And because of the rise in Islamophobic uh, hate crimes, in Islamophobic rhetoric, um, we have seen a rise in attacks on Muslim communities. And so there's this framework called gendered Islamophobia that we can use to kind of understand this issue. And I'm really glad that um, Chinese for Affirmative Action is really thinking about that and this bill SB 1161 is really considering all these intersections because it can't be just about one identity or one area. It has to consider all the ways in which we are impacted. Um, and so gendered Islamophobia allows us to draw attention to the ways in which Muslim women are disproportionately impacted by Islamophobia. Um, we are portrayed as terrorists or terrorist sympathizers, but at the same time oppressed. And so when violence against Muslim women happens, it is normalized, it is um, dismissed or ignored. And so um, it is really hard for Muslim women to actually even come forward and to share their stories, to be believed, to be heard, and to be respected. Um, and so it's been really an honor to represent Muslim women in this space as a decision maker, as a leader. Um, and I really hope more uh, movements and more conversations about public safety, about gender-based violence, um, continue to bring in more Muslim women um, and more voices from diverse communities and marginalized communities who historically have been silenced, erased, um, and often, unfortunately, are the most impacted by these issues. Thank you. 
I'm wondering if, if uh, either of you, Janice or, or Jupiter, have um, additional insights um, to about just, and I, you know, historically um, oppressed communities have a long history of organizing together, um, but, but there have also been tensions. Um, so given, you know, where we are at today, do you, do you have um, other insights or anything to add on to what Halima was saying about, about how we can, um, you know, push this issue forward, um, you know, in, in a more uh, multi, in a more collaborative way? Yeah, um, I'll say something that I've been really thinking about is as both um, an Asian person and a queer person, I've been really thinking about how can I queer AAPI spaces and then how can I make, do the vice versa, um, how can I make um, queer spaces really more inclusive of a broad AAPI identity? And I think doing that work both in the spaces, I'll give a little bit more example in a moment, um, will really help better inform different policies or you know, as we codify different, yeah, different policies in, into actual programs, initiatives, et cetera, it goes a really long way. And so whether it's, you know, I had been on the Harvey Milk LGBTQ Democratic Club board and have been a longtime member, you know, how can we really bring the API identity into that space and lift up more API folks into the leadership? Um, I, I was uh, actually just at the club recently speaking about the work I do uh, through the Coalition for Community Safety and Justice, for example. But that's only one example of that. And then certainly, you know, when we are talking about stop API hate, not only do we have to be much more expansive of what it means to be API, you know, where's the South Asian representation, you know, who are, who are the PI community leaders that we are actually working with? And how can we ensure that this is not just, you know, a cis East Asian movement? And how do we think about, you know, the API identity as expansive? And, you know, if you think like API folks are being targeted right now, what do you think of like trans API folks? What, what about queer, you know, gender non-binary API folks? And so I think in particular, one movement that I've been really, one organization I've been really inspired by, and they're part of the broader Acre Chinese for Affirmative Action family is Lavender Phoenix, uh, formerly known as APINC, where they're really starting from the intersection, starting from some of the most marginalized API communities, trans, trans and gender non-binary API folks, and talking about what are what does community safety look like for, for that community? And guess what, it's, it's not a bunch of police, it's not a bunch of enforcement, it's actually like education opportunities. It's actually things like job opportunities and you know addressing workplace discrimination. Um, it's a really, really different framing and I think that's where we as API community leaders like need to start from when we think about stopping API hate. Thank um, you. Yes. Um, I will say that I do agree as well. And I also really believe in the importance of building coalition and expanding the coalition. And when I think of um, SB 1161 and AB 2448, I also think about how this is also an issue about the environment. As we're trying to get more folks to ride public transit, then, you know, 
uh, ride their car. Uh, this is a th this is also a working class issue. As more affordable housing is it's built around major transit lines as transit oriented uh, communities. This is also a feminist issue it, because it highly impacts women and folks that are femme presenting. Um, and also a public safety issue, a human rights issue. And if we begin to understand uh, the conversation that we are having as being broad and expansive as it is, that is where we build real power in terms of I am with you, I am joining this fight because in some way or another, I also experienced this in this path and in, in this avenue. Aren't they awesome? <laughs> Thank you. Um, yes, uh, you know, absolutely. And or, you know, there's somebody that you care about. Everyone has, you know, a grandmother or, um, you know, a, some loved one who is also being impacted. Um, everything is interconnected. Yeah, one thing that we notice when we um, were engaging community members um, when we we're working to address this issue was that um, even if people hadn't directly experienced the issue, they had witnessed it and that had also impacted them, right? Seeing another person get disrespected, violated, harmed, as a human being, it does affect us. So it is such a broad issue, right? It affects essentially everyone um, in one way, shape, or form. And so it's just important for us to recognize that and also recognize as across communities, we have to do movement building, we have to work together and organize. Um, and more often than not, right, we have more, than, more in common um, than we don't. Um, I think we're, how are we doing on time? We're running, we're okay. We're a little bit over, but we, this is all really interesting stuff, right? Okay. Um, so Janice, um, because street harassment takes place in public spaces, and we've been talking a lot about public transportation already, but um, how does that inform your work professionally um, on the BART board? Yeah, I'll, I'll start talking about the Not One More Girl campaign, but really the expert here is Halima and the work that Lies for Girls has done. My understanding was that this was an initiative that started with um, my colleague on the board, Director Latifah Saiman, um, working um, and building um, leadership on the BART staff level to say, hey, we need to address this, and, and bringing, you know, and, and leaning into community leadership that had already been really working on this issue. So uh, Alliance for Girls, y'all did like a summer program uh, for youth, right? And the youth, I, I read the report and the work that they done. Oh my gosh, so these youth, you know, from um, really all over, I don't know, it was a, in East Bay, they decided that it was sexual harassment and public transit that they want to make as a project to address. And they did really incredible survey work, focus groups, um, and what I think was really important was that there was a leadership um, from, and the willingness from the BART board director, Latifah Simon, along with high-level staff uh, in Alicia Trost, who is now our chief communications officer, to, to, to listen and say, wow, this is not only painful to hear, but needed for us to hear, and let's do something about it. And that has really led and informed the Not One More Girl campaign, the initiative, which has been you know, producing um, a lot of marketing materials in our stations to, to call out, you know, gender-based violence that happens on BART to say, like, we see this, we know this, and we have to stop it, rather than pretending like it doesn't exist, and rather than, you know, pretending like, oh, we're already dealing with the problem, to really put that out there, and then use that as a way to connect with folks and say, and this is how we need your help in dealing with this by, you know, 
uh, developing the bystander intervention training that all staff now watch, um, and finding different ways to codify that work into BART policy, such as um, out, outlawing, banning um, gender-based harassment on public transit via our rider code of conduct. It's no longer allowed. It's actually, our code of conduct had previously been only what was codified in the California Penal Code. Um, we are we were unique in adding this. Um, Gender-based violence is not illegal um, by state law, but we said we, we're not going to allow this at BART. Um, another thing I was really proud of is um, the board also supported having um, youth who participate in the Not One More Girl uh, work to actually, I don't know if this is happening, so you, you can tell me, to actually participate and get paid to participate in interview panels. It happened. For, awesome. For our community ambassador program, which is a civilian um, ambassador program at BART that, that we just founded a couple years ago and is now a permanent program. So there's all these different ways that you can actually implement <laughs> what folks are telling you to do. Like they did all the work. We just are like, all right, we're gonna do this. And the last thing I'll say sort of in terms of intersectionality, what I, you know, was most, um, what I find was so important about the Not One More Girl campaign was that it centered on youth and it centered on trans and gender non-binary youth along with femme and you know female presenting youth. And so again, this could have been just a bunch of like cis white ladies talking about sexual harassment, but you know, we were really, really clear in that. That wasn't who we want to center. And again, how can you think about centering your policies, centering your work in really the most marginalized communities? Because you know that if you can make public transit safe for a trans or gender non-binary youth, you're gonna make it safe for everyone. Thank you. Halima, can you talk briefly about the data that has, yes. has come out? I have my phone out so I can get awesome. everything correct. <laughs> so as a part of this initiative, we asked BART to start tracking sexual harassment. And the success of this initiative really speaks to what SB 1161 can make possible for other transit agencies. So as a part of the initiative, um, the Passenger Environment Survey, which happens every quarter, started asking a yes or no question. Have you experienced gender-based sexual harassment in the last six months? Uh, keep in mind, this is COVID numbers. And from last year, went from a high of 12% to a low of 7% now. And BART conducted surveys a year in after we had publicly launched the campaign, which was last year, uh, April, um, doing a random online survey among BART writers. And the responses show that 65% are more aware of sexual harassment and gender-based violence. 52% um, knew more about how sexual harassment and gender-based violence impacts girls, transgender, and gender non-conforming people on BART. 46% responded they know where to get help if they experience sexual harassment and gender-based violence, and 36% said they felt safer writing BART. We also did in-person surveys because we recognize that many communities are distrusting of governments and giving surveys and doing data. So when we did our in-person events, which intentionally engaged um, disenfranchised communities, communities that have historically not been engaged with, went to West Oakland and East Oakland, um, we engaged 300 people and we did do in-person surveys in multiple languages. And those results found that 43% of the respondents felt safer writing BART after knowing about this initiative. Um, and so that's just one year in. BART is gonna be working on phase two and continuing to do this work. And it just shows the possibilities, right, that this work does have impact, it does have result, it is effective. And it's 
it makes us um, more effective when we're putting out solutions because we don't have to go back a year later and say, oh, we did that wrong, right? We have to do it again, right? Let's do it right from the beginning. And doing it right from the beginning means centering those most impacted as decision makers, paying people for their time, taking leadership from community-based organizations, and making sure that at the center of how transit agencies see safety and security, we're including an intersectional lens that includes gender-based violence, hate-based harassment, um, street harassment, in the center. So when we're designing a station, when we're renovating a station, when we're putting in a new line, whatever it is that we're doing, that is at the center and what we consider when we do this work. I don't know about you, but I want to learn more about this bill and how to support it. <laughs> uh, we'll get to that soon. So um, if, if, do we, has anyone asked, we're going to move a little bit to some questions. Do folks have some questions for me online or in person? Um, do we have some time for a few questions from the audience? There are some questions. I see. I see they're being evaluated. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Have any of the panelists heard of or participated in the self-defense trainings of Impact Bay Area? I believe they're one of our members at Alliance for Girls, <laughs> and I see their trainings all the time. But I have yet to participate, but I, I think that is a good resource to highlight, although um, I say this, I, I'm also a self-defense instructor, so whenever I talk about self-defense, I just want to be mindful that by promoting self-defense, I'm not suggesting it is our responsibility as those impacted um, to look out for ourselves, um, but it is there for anyone who, who wants to use it as a resource. Why focus on street harassment and not racial violence? Intersectionality. Yeah, I don't see those things as separate, so I don't know if the person who asked the question wants to serve elaborate more, if they feel comfortable. Um, no, I don't think anyone's question. Well, you know, I think that street harassment, it's, I look at it like an iceberg. Um, public uh, harassment, it's definitely, uh, it stems from a lot of uh, identities, as you know, Janice mentioned, uh, when we experience uh, public harassment, is it you know, is it because of this wide array of identities? Is it because I'm trans? Is it because I'm friend presenting? Is it because you know, um, I am, you know, brown? All of these things, they they are intersectional. And um, however, I do think that opening the discussion revolving around um, public harassment, it does open up um, the floor and the conversation for many and not just a specific group. Um, and as we're talking about coalition building and building a movement together, it's important that we start at sort of what affects all of us. Thank you. Um, I think, um, you know, the, the campaign uh, for No, Not One More Girl, really shows that there are concrete, data-driven, um, women-focused, you know, solutions. Um, 
I said earlier that this this is you know really some like systems moving public health you know years long work, and I I still believe that. And look what could happen in one year. You know when when things are really done um, in in a thoughtful um, way um, and and resourced um, in the right way. Transit agencies can start collecting data on sexual harassment like today. We don't have to wait for a bill to be passed. That can that can happen now. Um, so Halima, Janice, Jupiter, thank you so, so much. Um, many thanks to Manny's for providing us with this warm space. Um, and to all of you in the audience and online. Oh, there's, oh yeah, let's have another question. And then I'm gonna talk a little bit more about the No Place for Hate California campaign. We do have till 7.10. Okay. <laughs> um, as a trans woman, how can you feel safer while traveling? I'm guessing that's for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I always, um, I have made several rules for myself. One of them is that I do not uh, get on public transit if it's too late. Um, from the time that I lived in San Francisco, which is you know, I'm almost approaching a decade, I've come to familiarize myself with the bus routes, with Muni, with BART, and I always know, oh, the 22 after 9 p.m. can get a little bit rough. Or I used to live in Outer Mission before, and the 14, I don't know what it is about the 14, but it's just, uh, it's, it's, quite uh, alarming and it's quite dangerous. So I make my, um, I have instated rules for myself in terms of this is, you know, this is the bus route that I can get on, you know, so on and so forth. And I know that limiting myself is not the right thing to do. Um, but I also understand the danger that I'm putting myself in. Um, I also try to uh, walk or ride, or be with the group, or with someone else. Um, uh, and uh, sort of those are the precautions that I take myself uh, off the top of my mind. I also do like to share my location with my friends all the time. And I'm always checking on the location of my friends. And I'm always making sure, hey girl, are you okay? Is everything good? Did you get home all right? Um, I, I feel like that's very important and, uh, and that's something that we should normalize in terms of reaching out to friends when we just left the concert. Are you home? Did you get, you know, uh, home safe? Um, so there, there, are, there are many things uh, that I do, but those things that I mentioned is something that, you know, I do to keep myself um, safe. Um, but uh, yeah. Yeah, thank you. And I, I'm just gonna have to counter that question. I know we're running out of time, but I wanna say what, and, and Halima spoke to this a little bit, but what can we do to help make the trans community feel safe? Um, I do think that it's very much about uh, what uh, Halima and Janice said, that when we see something, it's definitely about uh, speaking up and letting someone know that you're not alone. I am here, I am watching, I am you know, uh, here with you. Um, this happened to me once, but I was writing BART once, and I was sitting by myself, and it was late at night, and I remember that uh, this other girl came and sat next to me, and we, you know, started chatting, 
where you're going, uh, the, I'm going home, you know, so on and so forth. And that really made me feel so safe and so comfortable to know that someone else was watching out for me. And ever since then, I told myself that every time I would um, get on transit, I would sit next to someone that I could visibly see was uncomfortable or was not feeling safe. Uh, and we can always tell by their behavior and sort of like the language of their body. Um, and I think that that, in a way, it, it's a very nonverbal assurance of like, I'm here, just eye contact. And just having that, I feel like goes a really, really, really long way. Plus one, two, and three. Um, so yes, again, thank you all so much for being here. So what next and what can you all do? Um, as I mentioned in February, the Stop AAPI Hate Coalition launched the first state policy agenda in the nation here in California, which presents a set of solutions to address street harassment through a public health approach. We've since successfully named the problem of street harassment. The No Place for Hate California campaign is fueling a movement to address and end street harassment. The San Francisco Board of Supervisors and the LA Board of Supervisors passed resolutions in support of the policy agenda. Um, and the No Place for Hate California policy agenda currently consists of two bills. One of them, the Increasing Safety for Public Transit Riders Bill, SB 1161, authored by Senator Min. And two, the Expanding Civil Rights Protections at Businesses Bill, AB 2448, authored by Assemblymember Ting, who of course represents San Francisco. Um, and the bills passed through their respective houses with bipartisan support, and we're focusing our advocacy, advocacy on getting these bills passed this year. And you can learn more at noplaceforhateca.org. We continue to engage over 100 organizations across California to support our policy agenda, and we need your help to spread the word and also tell your stories, because it is people power that fuels this movement and everyone telling, being transparent about their stories as you feel comfortable. So these bills are essential stepping stones to ensuring California is being responsive to the alarming rise of hate incidents documented in our state, not just against Asian Pacific and Pacific Island, Asian Americans and Pacific Islander communities, but against women, black people, and other people of color, the LGBTQ plus community, people with disabilities, seniors, and all people who are vulnerable to harassment. Um, and so next, I'm very proud to introduce my colleague and fellow CAA advocacy manager, Nick G, to describe the fun action you can take today at our photo station um, right here in the back. I know things can feel pretty dismal out there right now, but truly every action that you take is an act of hope and resistance. Thank you all so very much. Here's the mic. 
Well, good evening. My name is Nick Diaz, Shanti had uh, introduced me. Uh, I'm an advocacy manager with Chinese for Affirmative Action and Stop AAPI Hate. Our team has continued to push for change um, and we need your support tonight to move our campaign forward. So tonight we invite you uh, to become a digital advocate with us and take action by participating in the No Place for Hate California social media campaign. And so there's three ways that I wanna invite you to partner with us tonight to become a digital advocate. First is actually to visit our website, noplaceforhateca.org to learn more about this campaign and how you can get involved. And second, tonight we have a live activity for you to join our campaign in the back tables by sharing what you might imagine a safer place to be. We're asking folks um, to complete this prompt. I want a safer place too, dot, dot, dot by writing out on the whiteboard and posting a photo of you holding this board on Twitter. I'll be stationed in the back table tonight with Shanti and Andy and Carly. Shanti's actually holding it right now if you wanna turn around um, to see an example of what we are actually asking you all to do tonight. And lastly, we'd like to encourage you, if you're willing and able, would you consider financially partnering with a local LGBTQ organization? Please consider donating uh, a one-time or recurring gift uh, to an organization near you by visiting giveoutday.org. Again, if you have any questions, please feel free to stop by the back table, connect with our team. Um, thank you so much for your partnership as we work together to end street harassment and hate. Uh, at this time, I'd like to invite Darian back up to move us on 